0: Well, good morning again. Uh, Yeah, this is a great day to be here. Um, I remember, I think it was about, um, we'll get started here this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, you might want to open them to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be, uh, in chapter 6, we're going to be closing off the Gospel of Luke this morning. Uh, We're going to be closing off in verses uh, 43 to 49. I remember about six weeks ago, we had an elders meeting, seven maybe weeks ago, and I was saying to the elders, you know, like, when we move into the ledge, I should probably, maybe we'll take a break from the Gospel of Luke, you know, and, uh, and I hadn't really thought through where it would be and everything, because since we're back at the ledge, you know, we probably should have a, a message that's focused on, you know, the vision and where we're going and stuff like that, and then as we got closer to the date and we're moving along in the Gospel of Luke, really in the last week or two, I'm looking at my notes and looking at it, and I'm going, you know, God was way ahead of me, <laughs> Pretty typical, right? Uh, and uh, which is a good thing. And uh, the more I looked at it, I thought, you know, no, this text that we're in today is perfect. It's really perfect for where we are, and it's perfect for a couple of reasons, as you're going to see. Is it is about the rock, not the church, but the person, Jesus Christ, and uh, it's 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 also the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. So it's uh, we get to finish this section, and then we'll see next week what we do. We might keep going in Luke, or we might break for a little bit, as I've said before. It's a long gospel. Um, we introduced it uh, back in December. We started in the Gospel of Luke. We've been going verse by verse and learning a lot. We've titled it The Skeptic's Gospel. And uh, part of the reason for that is that uh, Luke is a, a former skeptic, and he's writing this gospel um, for his dear friend Theophilus. Let me get the screen up for you so you can see where we're at. And uh, it's not moving. Oh, you know why? I turned it off to save the, batter- save the battery. Yeah, I'm actually thinking. We've got to get this clicker out of my hand next week. Anybody think that's okay? Okay. That was one of the glitches this morning, right? The worship, you know? (laughs) I was behind like two screens at a time saying hi to people. Yeah, we started it and we've titled it essentially the Skeptic's Gospel because Luke himself was a skeptic, a Gentile pagan who came to faith in Jesus Christ, most likely, we believe, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And he's writing this gospel to a dear friend whose name is Theophilus, who he wants to have certainty about his faith in Christ. And so it's been an amazing Journey so far in that gospel, learning a lot about Jesus, of course, because that's what Luke wants to profile. So, I want to pray for us one more time before we dive into today's message, uh, which I'm titling The Way of Jesus. So, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you one more time for this day. Thank you for bringing us here this morning. Uh, Father, I I thank you uh, that we get to gather in this space. Thank you that we're here on the street, publicly opening our doors to men and women who are walking by and saying, Come and hear about Jesus. Uh, Most of us who are here this morning, Father, we've already done that. And as Jesus is going to challenge us this morning, He wants us to come to hear and to do what He says. So Lord, I pray that each one of our hearts would be touched and moved today as we look at these words of Jesus as He concludes His most amazing sermon ever. We pray these things in His worthy name. Amen. Uh, most of you are pretty young uh, in this room, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, you might not know Mr. Win- uh, Winston Churchill, the former Prime Minister of, of England. There's a great movie out, uh, recently about him. I forget what it was called. It's on, on Netflix. It's great. The actor is ridiculous. If you saw him in real life, uh, and then the makeup they put on him and the job he does uh, portraying the Prime Minister is amazing. But there was a time in World War II where the British Secret Service had broken the Nazi code. They had broken the code so that they could actually know what they were going to do next, which was pretty important uh, during that war, which was devastating to the country of England. And Germany, if they were able to take England, the world was theirs. there was a proposition put before him, and and he had a choice to make. It was a very difficult decision. The choice was one of two things. Either we warn the people of Coventry, the small town, a few hundred thousand people, that is going to get bombed next and save their lives, or we don't. And if we don't, We'll get to know what the Germans are going to do next when it comes to London and more people. So the, the dilemma, the choice he had to make was revealing the code to the... Well, we know the code. We've broken your code because we've warned the people of Coventry or not. He chose not to warn them. Thousands upon thousands of people died because of that decision. Millions were saved because of that decision. That's a hard decision, right? Right? very hard decision. And you look back at a man like that, and the movie portrays it very well, he drank a lot, he worried a lot, he wore a lot of the pressure of that decision. Would you make the same decision? I don't know. I'm glad I've not been put in a situation like that. Great leaders, however, do have to and make decisions like that. The reality is you and I, if you think about it, and this is kind of the thing I want to get into today, and Jesus is really going to offer this to us today, we, we are constantly faced with making choices, aren't we? Making decisions about everything in life. I mean, it starts when we're kids, when we're little ones, right? And, and our parents, if they're good parents and they're trying to teach us properly and effectively, they're, they're teaching us to make, hopefully, wise choices, but, but sometimes, of course, they use the whole idea of teaching to punish, right? It's like you either eat your vegetables or you're going to go to bed hungry. You choose. <laughs> We're, parents can be really mean. We've done that. It worked. It worked. You know? Jonathan, it worked with him especially. But as we grow up, as we grow up, and as we become teenagers and over, choices, decisions become critically important, are put in front of us all the time. Uh, we, we need to decide, first of all, you know, um, what kind of friends we're, we're going to have, who we're going to hang out with. Those are important decisions. Are we going to hang out with this group of kids, or are we going to hang out with that group of kids? What about then, then going to post-secondary education? Are we going to further our education? Are we going to go to a college, learn a trade? Are we going to university? You know, then that's all about, of course, then a career, and it's a path for our lives, right? And then after that, you get the university, you get the degree. Now you've got to find the job, and you've got all kinds of choices. And you've got to decide where you're going to live, are you going to buy, are you going to rent, who are you going to live with, are you going to marry this person or that person, children, when, ever, right? These, we were faced all of our lives with decision after decision after decision. And, and for some people, really, uh, uh, whether you're young or as you get older, decision-making can become very, very, very stressful, Right? Because at somebody, especially if you've made a bad decision or you've gotten burned once in a while, you just don't want to make any more big mistakes, right? Anybody? Like, like it, it's, a, it's a point in your life where you just don't want to do it. So it's possible, of course, if you're young to think that, you know, I can make a wrong decision. Like, it's okay. Like, it's not the end of the world. If I make a wrong decision, you know, uh, it's all right. You know, like, dust myself off, pick myself back up, and just start over. Anybody got the T-shirt? I've got several. Several. Tie-dyed to today, right? That's dangerous, though, when you think about it, isn't it? But we think that way when we're younger. We we think we can make mistakes and just recover, but the reality is sometimes we can make mistakes, we can go so far down a road that our life actually ends up becoming potentially, in that area anyway, a train wreck. An absolute train wreck. And I'm Certain most of us have been afraid of that at certain points in our time. We, we had a series uh, last year called Discovering Wisdom, and of course it was uh, there was the, the wisdom of the world, and there's the wisdom that comes from above, and that's God's wisdom, right? And, and, and we, we had this this one phrase that I, I posted at the time. I want to show it to you again, uh, taking it from that message, and it's important, especially for those who are young, those who are thinking, I can crash and burn, and I can start all over again. Be very careful with that kind of wisdom, because we said this, you can have all the knowledge in the world, and yet without wisdom, still make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. What, what tells you that just because I've made a bad decision once, I've made a mistake that all of a sudden I'm wiser? I mean, I've thought that way many times, and it's just not the way it is. And the truth and reality is because without wisdom, it's possible to make bad decisions and choices that do and will lead to train wrecks in our lives. I mean, sure, you can pick up the pieces and start fresh, but frankly, the hurt, the pain, the brokenness, not only in your own lives, but in the lives of others that you've been in that train wreck with, it stays with you. So here's a question. Wouldn't it be nice to know with certainty right? Wouldn't it be nice to know with certainty which decision was the right decision, the right path, the right choice? Wouldn't it be? <laughs> I mean, now, someone's going to probably be thinking, if not all of you, yeah, yeah, that wishful thinking pastor, preacher, right? Like, come on, is that really realistic that we can ever be in that position? Well, let me ask one more question. What one thing do you think you would need to have, the knowledge of, in order that your chances for certainty about decisions would be much, much better. What might that be? Sorry? Experience. (laughs) Experience. Well, true. Experience would probably be very good. I'm going to propose to you this morning, it boils down to one word. And it's a word that in our culture, in our world today, and if you've been around the rock for seven or eight years, you've heard me bring it up quite often. And we need to look at it again this morning because it's the reality of this passage that we need to understand. And that one word would be this, the truth. (laughs) The truth. It's the definite article, right? The truth. Now, you and I both know, most of you know this uh, quite well, that we we live in a day um, when that word is so obscured, so questioned, it's, it's beyond belief. But that, I want to show you this morning, is the most important thing that we need to possess, if possible, or be close to, in order to make choices and decisions that there's a better chance of certainty they will be the right decisions for our lives. So many of you here today are too young to remember the days when there was more certainty about a number of things. I grew up, I was born, I know it's hard to believe looking at me, but I was born in 1955, right? And, and I remember the days when, like growing up, where there was a lot more certainty, certainty in people's lives, especially around morals, about right and wrong. Now, I was raised in, in, a, in a home where my, my mother was Catholic and I was raised Catholic, but my dad was n- not much of anything, but he was a very moral man. You know, he was very, very moral, and later in my life when I was doing immoral things as a teenager, he was disciplining me, but he wasn't a Christian. And yet, right and wrong was really important to my dad, and I just remember in those days it was very clear what was right and what was wrong. And if you want to blame any generation, don't blame the millennials today, blame my generation, you know, the baby boomers, because, you know, it comes along the early 60s, mid-60s, we're all wearing blue jeans with bell-bottoms and tie-dye t-shirts and long hair, and what are we doing? We're rebelling. Against what? Against right and wrong that our parents had set up, and we're also... We're, we're students of, at that time, something that we didn't even realize. We're like those frogs in the proverbial, you know, bottle or, or a pot that were slowly getting warmer, and we didn't realize what was going on, because what was going on was, since the days of the Enlightenment, right, back in the 16 and 1700s, and it moves forward into postmodernism in the days that I was a teenager, and the question of truth was under attack. And it was in those days that it really became a big issue. And the big issue was, in the Enlightenment to postmodernity, the philosophers of the day, the culture of the day, basically came to this conclusion. The problem with our world, the problem with what's right and what's wrong, with evil and all that's going on in our world, is first of all, the Bible, and second of all, the concept of absolute truth. Does anybody... Remember that and how that came about, right? And so I remember growing, and, and all of a sudden evolution comes into the picture, and, and I'm not saying just it's a whole other subject, I won't go down a rabbit trail, but here's the point. Everything was questioned, absolute truth. How can you possibly believe in something called absolute truth? And so the idea was is that human flourishing was, was uh, at risk because of this concept of absolute truth, And of course, the result was relativism. And that's the soup that we live in today. And it's gone beyond that, as we'll see today. For the past 50, 60 years, the mantra of our culture has been this. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth, right? You you, you have it. And of course, Oprah and her most progressive friends today have taken that to another notch. And they've taken it to the point where it's like, what you need to do and what I need to do is speak my truth. So, so it's not only relative, it's, it's every one of us has our own version of the truth. Does that sound confusing at all to you? Does that not sound like a recipe for a disaster? Yeah, I think it, I think it does. I think it is. So listen, I, I want to show you a few things here this morning. Let me show you a few problems with that thinking and how it impacts our ability to make right choices, to come here and do what Jesus teaches us to do, wants us to do. Why does He want us to do it? So we will flourish. So we will be healthy. And so we will love one another in the way that we're supposed to. So first to say, listen to me, that there is absolutely no such thing as absolute truth. Did you hear that? People say that today, but they'll, they'll say it this way. There's no such thing as absolute truth. I added the idea that they're saying there's absolutely no such thing as absolute truth. Do you see the contradiction there? The statement itself is a statement of absolute truth. And so that's one huge contradiction. Another example would be one of the key objections that people have to Christianity. I understand it. I used to have this objection. I mean, how can you Christians say, I mean, you're so exclusive that Jesus is the only way Actually, the Christians don't say that. Jesus said it. <laughs> I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, right? He was the one saying that. How can you guys say that? That's so, that's so narrow. It's like it, it's impossible that you can say that. Again, the contradiction is, first of all, every other major religion in the world believes that their God is the only way. Right? So it's not a contradiction. Every major religion believes that. But the bigger contradiction is this. To say that is to say this. There absolutely is no way that there's only one way. There absolutely must be many ways. Again, that's a statement of absolute truth. So one final example on this before we hear what Jesus has to say would be this. People who say that, you may have said that. We we, we, we actually sometimes live it out. Even as Christians, we act that way. But the reality is nobody in this world today can actually go out into society, into this world, and live under the concept that there is no such thing as absolute truth. By necessity, we believe in absolute truth. I mean, those who are atheistic who will say, well, materialism and science is truth, right? Well, they're depending on that, are they not? They're putting their faith in the fact that there is this absolute called science, facts, it's good. But here's a practical example. We certainly believe in absolute truth, I believe, I'm going to suggest to you this morning for you to think about, when it comes to the concept of guilt and innocence, right? I mean, that's why we have our courts of law, right? Uh, when was the last time you saw someone who was charged with a heinous crime, a murder, and, and they were brought in before the judge or brought in and they admitted, yeah, I'm guilty." Like, when was the last time you saw that, right? They don't do that. Most people come, not guilty. And so the, the idea is, is that the, the, you've got the prosecutor, you've got the defense, you've got the judges, you've got the witnesses. The whole idea is what? The whole idea is to find the truth. To find the truth. Now, sometimes it's hard to do that, isn't it, based on the evidence. O.J. Simpson comes to mind, right? <laughs> O.J., remember him? He got off, that guy. Guilty or But here, here's the thing I want to ask you before we move on to Jesus' words this morning. Is the truth not out there? Think about that. In the case of a person who's charged with a crime, the truth is they either are fully, absolutely innocent or fully, absolutely guilty, right? So the truth is out there, absolutely. Where might that be? Well, as we know as believers in Jesus Christ, it is in Him. What our world fails to understand and believe and accept is that there is a God, (laughs) and He knows all things, and there is nothing hidden from Him. And so He is not only the giver and power of wisdom, but He is the purveyor of all knowledge that leads to truth, because He knows the truth in every possible way. And so we've arrived here at the teachings of Jesus so far. What he's been doing so far through the gospel, particularly in the last several weeks as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, is he's been doing comparisons between two ways, two paths, right, two choices consistently in his teaching to those who are his disciples. And as he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, he leaves his disciples with two more comparisons that I want to read for you this morning that are the secret to the life that he wants for them and for you and for me starts in verse 30, 43 and 44, where Jesus, again, he's, imagine the picture, he's come down the mountain a little way into a, a level playing ground, playing ground with his apostles up front, his true believing disciples in front of, behind them, and then behind that, thousands of people in the crowd, which is continually thinning as Jesus continues to preach this sermon. It's interesting. And now he says these words to his disciples. For no good tree... Bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. So those of you who are with us for the first time here this morning and just catching up on this, that word for obviously is really important at the beginning for context. Um, It's really the beginning of this last part of his teaching. It's the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount sermon. And since he started the Sermon on the Mount, he's been teaching, as I said already, directly to his disciples. Everything he's been teaching them has been centered around uh, what we've learned to call the beautiful attitudes, right, the beatitudes of the kingdom that are part of his kingdom process. And as we learned in the last several weeks, he's really narrowed it down. He really made it really simple for us, although it was an incredible challenge for His disciples in that day, and as we went through this in the past three weeks, very challenging to us. He's, he's synthesized it down to basically three things, two really important ones. The first is, just love your neighbor, just, just love your neighbor, and He literally meant that. And he's not talking about the people you just walk by on the street going, hey, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, not really in your life, but love your neighbor. No, he's talking about the people who maybe live to your right, live to your left, across the street, behind you, in this room here. And then he also said, shockingly, love your enemies. So what we learned from that was, really, what he's saying is he wants us to love everyone always. Such an easy thing to do, isn't it? And then last week, he threw in one more. While you're doing that, judge not, unless you yourself want to be judged. So this is where he's been going. It's incredible. And, and, and what we learned last week is essential to our passage for today, and that is that these are heart issues. These aren't things that you can just think about in your mind and go, yeah, I'm just going gonna, gonna to suck it up, and I am going to love my neighbor who I'm fighting with over that fence, right, whatever, or I'm going to love my enemies, whatever it might be. No, that's no, it's, it's a heart issue. And that's what Jesus has come to do, is give us new hearts, and that's the good news. He offers to give us new hearts if we will trust Him with our life, with everything about our lives. No effort required, just faith. So this, this text, obviously, right here, what we're looking at here, is taken from the world of horticulture, right? And it, it's really... Oh, come on, anybody can read this. It's real simple logic. I always love these people go, yeah, well, the Bible, there's so many different ways to interpret it. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. It seems pretty simple to me, right? You don't have to be a, a preacher, go to get an MDiv at four years in a seminary in order to look at the text and go, it's pretty simple what he's actually saying here. You know, it, first, if the tree itself is healthy... I mean, if if it has deep roots, right, and it gets enough water, enough sunlight, the chances are that that tree, if it's got all those things, all those ingredients, is going to produce leaves and nice fruit, right? It's going to do that. That's, on the other hand, it's also, secondly, trees we see here are known by their fruit. So we call it an apple tree because... There are apples growing on it, right? It's it's simple logic. There's nothing, you know, there's no brain surgery required here in order for you you to be able to uh, figure this out. It's simple, basic science and logic. But there's a comparison too, and the comparison is helpful as well. Bad trees here are said to be thorn bushes, prickly. You don't want to go near them. You don't want to pick the fruit of those. They don't bear fruit anyway, but, right? And then bramble bushes. And so when have you ever really seen any lovely fruit hanging from these nasty bushes? So Jesus is setting up a comparison here. He's trying to get us to think about them in that day, to think about the comparisons that are before us. But there's also the tree and the fruit and how they're related. And so Jesus now applies it when he says this. Look at this. He says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his or her, what? Their heart produces good. The evil person... (laughs) Out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So now we get to the heart, right? The heart of what Jesus is getting at. And right away we can see that he is speaking about two people, two people with two different kinds of hearts. It's Jesus who's preaching this sermon, thankfully. And so there's a comparison again, he's comparing here. And it declares to us that from God's perspective, maybe not the human perspective, you and I you and I need a heart that is rooted in really good soil. We need a heart that is watered appropriately. We need a heart that receives sun, shine. We need a heart that is truly healthy, that has a vascular system that is healthy. And if we have hearts like this, then good fruit will be born through our lives that we lead. It's pretty good. It'll emanate from our mouths and be evidenced from our lives. On the other hand, if our hearts are unhealthy and our veins are clogged, well, clearly what comes out of us will not be very healthy at all. And so the key words, of course, of Jesus there are this, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, again, many of us who, who have earthly wisdom, and I do from time to time, we all do, you know, we, we, we don't listen to the heart that God has planted in us. We're not listening to the heart of God. It, we're thinking about things. And our mouth starts talking before we're thinking about God's heart on an issue. It's just my head is into this, and I start talking. So it's very interesting. Jesus has already, already taught us, right? Remember last week? Judge not. And this is the great conundrum that many of us have, right? Because people who are not Christians who, you know, what is the one thing that they hate about Christians besides the exclusivity more than anything else? You're so judgmental, right? You're just, you're just criticizing everybody, judging everybody, and the Bible even says, judge not. Well, wait a second. Jesus is saying right here that you can judge the fruit of a person's life right? You can judge their heart by their fruit. And he's actually imploring us to do so. He's actually imploring that you must do that. So it's used to end conversations, quite frankly, when people drag that out. And Jesus is simply saying here what we know to be true. The tongue, the things we say, when people aren't looking at us, right? you know, like when we're alone with our wife or with our friends or we're in the room and we stub our toe or we hit our ham- hand with a hammer or whatever, what comes out of our mouth is what's in our heart, right? It's the way it is. I remember uh, many years ago, uh, many years ago now, uh, when I first became a Christian, th- there were a couple of very significant changes. The first thing is, is that I didn't realize it was just Jesus saves, but he shaves, right? I got a major haircut because my hair was down my back and I was a hippie in Toronto playing in a rock and roll band, etc., doing all kinds of crazy things. But one of the things that I did a lot, and I'm embarrassed to say it, but it's just true, I, I took the Lord's name in vain a lot. And I cursed quite a bit that lord's taking the, taking the lord's name in vain thing was i mean even when i go to catholic church i would get in trouble with that right but but the reason why that was is because I, and, I, and i don't mean to put it on a particular group of people but my mom and dad were they grew up in, in uh, cape breton nova scotia and just the language in our house and we went to parties with all the east coasters you know lord Tundrin, they would say his name right and it was just it was just like and, and after a while like i wanted to be like my dad so i'm walking around going lord tundran at seven, eight years of age, and my dad go, hey, hey. And I'm going, wait a second, you say it? What? And it just goes on from there. And, and people, like, you know, something bad happens, and they just go, they just take his name, right? And, and I was doing it consistently, constantly. And, and I remember the guy who was witnessing to me when I worked at the stereo shop in downtown Toronto um, and he would give me, he was a born-again Christian, he's all over me, like, witnessing to me, and I'm going, please be quiet, right? And, and you know, like, I'm smoking, and I'm taking the Lord's name in vain, and, and he kept going after me on that, and I remember the night that I gave my, my life to the Lord, I, I trusted him, um, not that I did anything, believe me, but I, I, I was doing what I thought I needed to do, pray, confess, and really repented, and really felt the Holy Spirit come into my heart and my life, and... um. You know, it was about a week, a week and a half later that, um, you know, I already had the haircut, by the way, uh, but the, the, the week and a half later, people were going, Glenn, you're not, you're not cursing anymore. It was unconscious to me. Like, I, I didn't, like, all of a sudden go, okay, now, <laughs> I have to be this kind of person who doesn't do it. it was literally taken away from me, and my wife noticed that. At the time, she was my girlfriend, and we got married shortly after I came to the Lord. But it was a wonderful experience, and I look back on that and go, man, that was, that was wonderful the Lord did that. And as I've grown in my faith, there are many other things. I said, Lord, would you, would you change that about me? Like, like, you did that. Why don't you do this? Why, what's taking so long? Well, maybe there's something on my part that I need to do. So Jesus comes to you, and here's what he does. He comes to you and to me, and he invites us, he invites him, pardon me, to give us new hearts, hearts of flesh and not of stone. Then what He wants to do with you and for the rest of your life and my life is what He wants to do is massage that heart (laughs) and keep massaging it and softening it so that you will become like Him. You will become the kind of person who can truly love your neighbor, love your enemies, not be judgmental. That's what He's trying to accomplish in our lives. So next, he offers a warning, followed by an illustration of the two paths that are ahead of those with these new hearts, by the way. You can't do this without these new hearts, with these new hearts, and those without. There's a comparison. So first, he says this. This is important. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word, look, and does them, I will show you what he's like. So he's setting it up. He's, he wants to show us the picture of a person. And so we've seen this pattern so far in Luke's gospel. C- great crowds are following Jesus, right? Uh, they're coming mostly for the miraculous healings, which is great. They need to be healed. And they're coming for that, or they're coming for the free meals, you know, feeding 5,000, whatever. They're, they're coming often for the, the amazing teaching. They're, they're hearing him, and they're going, man, this guy speaks with authority. He's like wise. He's like smarter than any of our other scribes. And like he's, he's actually talking about things that I know are true about myself. And, but then what happens is uh, it gets to a point, the point where they hear something about themselves and they hear it over and over and all of a sudden they don't like it anymore. They realize that what he's getting at is you need to change. You're really not that great a person you need to change. And the crowd starts to thin on Jesus. He ends up on the day that he resurrects from the dead with 120. That's about the size of our church, kids included today. It started to thin out. So here's what happened. Many, 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 many were willing to come for what they might get. Many, 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 many came to hear very, very few do what he says. And it's pretty hard, as I said already, to do it if you haven't got the new heart. So then he tells us what the person who comes, hears, and does looks like. (laughs) And once again, he tells this parable by comparing two men, two builders. Let's read the beginning. He says this in verse 48. He, this person, this disciple, is like a man building a house who dug a deep And dug deep, pardon me, and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. In verse 49, he says, But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin Of that house was great. I shared once before when we were in a similar passage, the passage in Matthew's gospel, which tells the story a little bit differently. Rather than a flood, he calls it a storm. I like that word, and I'm going to apply that to our message today, but also because, as I mentioned then, my dad was a a builder growing up. He was a custom builder. He was a very good builder. He was a gifted and dedicated builder. My dad was, besides being moral about what's right and what's wrong, everything was to code. Like, and, and he, just, he was a really good builder, and I, I admired that about my dad. It was amazing. So this parable, this story, whenever I hear it, I'm going, yeah, <laughs> you know, two by six construction, you build a foundation, makes perfect sense. haven't done, necessarily done that with my life, <laughs> which is the point of this parable. So in this parable, listen, we have, we have two men, again, we'll just go through it a little bit, and we'll look at the things that are similar, two men who are both what? They're both builders, so that's the same. Sometime after they were done building their houses, both of their houses were struck by a flood or by a storm, so they have that in common, right? Those are the similarities, but there are also some major differences. Uh, The first man, we are told, did what? Well, he didn't start to build up right away. He dug deep. (laughs) He went deep into the ground first, right? That was the first thing that he did, and, and then he laid a foundation on what? On the rock, which is a metaphor in all of Scripture for Jesus. He is the rock. The second man didn't bother with a foundation. He, he just laid a concrete pad and started building. And in Matthew's gospel, he talks about building on sand without a foundation, which is totally foolish, So the way that they build their houses was very different. One had a foundation and one without. But there was also a tremendous difference in the results, wasn't there? Huge difference in the results. The results were also so different. The man who built his house with a foundation built on the rock, his house remains standing no matter the storm. The Greek sort of implies that this is not just a one-time end time, although there's that picture as well, storm. It's about perpetual storms that keep coming every year when the floods rise. And maybe over time the house comes down, but this one house, no way. It cannot come down. It was built well, is what Luke's gospel tells us. It was built really, really well. The second man's house didn't fare so well, though, did it? The flood came, and we read, immediately it fell. That's the metaphor and picture he wants to put across. And the ruin of that house was great. And so, again, the picture is total destruction. Have you seen it? Any of the floods across North America this past year? Have you seen what's going on in Hawaii? It's not a flood, but kind of, right? It's lava coming in the form of a flood, and it, it's just total devastation. Total devastation. So, again, we have a, we have a pretty simple story, don't we? pretty easy to understand. You don't have to rack your brain, and, you know, you'll need an MDiv or a Bible degree to figure these things out, what Jesus is saying. It's pretty simple. Jesus began this story by saying, listen, this is an illustration of the life of a disciple who has come to me, who has heard me, and is doing what I say. That's the illustration that's being given here. The houses are a metaphor for our lives. The first man sets out to build a life that has a firm foundation. It takes time to build a house like that. It's far more costly than to just put up a house, just start right away building on a pad. I don't know what the comparisons are. Some of you here are contractors. You would know how much more it it costs to lay a proper foundation first with forms and the concrete and the rebar and then start building. It's quite a a bit more expensive to build a house that way. So there's another similarity here. The picture Jesus wants us to see, I think, is this. On the surface, on the exterior, it's not said in the text, but it's a picture he's showing us, these houses look identical. Like you're walking by and you're going, you know, Glenn's house? It's just as good as Bill's house. Like, look, you know, main floor, nice door, nice trim, second floor, good-looking roof. That's the implied, right? What you see from the exterior is that they're apparently identical houses. They look pretty much the same. Everything about the two houses and the two builders actually looks the same. The roof, the walls, the color of paint, the windows, everything except one thing. The one thing that you cannot see. The heart. Oh, wait. It's the foundation. Oh, wait. Is it the foundation or is it the heart? It's, a, it's an amazing parable Jesus is teaching us. So there's one more similarity that's also not so obvious I want to show you. Both of, both of these men at, at one point had to do what? Both of these men had to make a choice. One simply said, "Yes, Jesus, uh, that's really good. I I I love everything you said. You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you know your words of wisdom on my tool belt, and I thank you for that. But you know, as far as you know, dying to myself and living for you, and you taking over my life, and me doing everything you said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go out and start building my life on the foundation that I will set, which is just a concrete pad on some sand." They had to make a choice. And so, the question then again, another follow up to that is why did the one man choose to build a foundation on the rock? Why did he, when he saw his neighbor, like just starting to build right away and get ahead of him and getting on with his life, why did he decide, well, you know what I'm going to do? Is no. I'm going to build my life on the rock. So, that means I got to start digging first. I got to go deeper into this relationship. I got to get to know what it is that he wants me to do. I got to hear some more. From him, well, it's simple, right? This person, he comes. He hears what he has to say, and he does what he has to say, daily. Daily. So, friends, listen. In conclusion, I want to I want to put this out to you this morning, and end briefly with a couple of things. Number one, you can, by the way, if you're here today and uh, your life has been maybe not a train wreck but there have been some paths you've been going down or even that you're going down right now that is not panning out. It's, it's not, and you know it, in this particular area, it's not what God has for you. Christian, if you know that's not what God has for you, you can start or restart building your life today on that firm foundation, on that rock who is Jesus. It, it, it might require some renos, Right? It might even require a tear down. Maybe it would require that for you to get serious with Christ. But in the end, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Another thing is this you know the storms are coming, right? I'm a little older than some of you here, been through some storms. There are more coming. Some of you have been through some storms. Very, very difficult challenges in life. You've survived some of those storms. Some of them you didn't think you would. Some that are ahead that you're fearful of, you don't know if you can. They're inevitable. No one can escape the storms, right? None of us can. Finally, there's one last similarity between these two, isn't there? These two men, but also with us and it's the most important similarity that Jesus wants to get across to these people in that day and to you and me here today. And that similarity is that we are all going to face the greatest storm ever, right? It's a storm called death. That's hard news. It's reality. You guys know that. That's a hard storm, And the question Jesus is putting before them on that day and us here today is, are you going to stand, be able to stand on that day firm when that storm comes to you? This parable warns us that a life built on anything but the rock who is Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for you and for me will not stand that storm. That's... Good news. But that requires a choice. All of Jesus' teachings, I've already said this this morning, were all about two ways, two paths, right? His boldest and most challenging statement that He ever made in the Bible, in my opinion, and we've been over this before, is what I want to leave you with this morning. He said this in Matthew's gospel in chapter 7. And he's saying it to the crowd. He's saying it to his disciples and to everyone. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is near his conclusion in Matthew's gospel. It is smack between Judge Not and the two stories that we just read today. And Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. That word find in the Greek can also be translated choose. Many people choose to build their lives on sound on sand, pardon me, without a foundation. Jesus says that there are few who choose the narrow gate. Few. Not many. Few who will choose that narrow gate, a foundation that is built on him. This is your choice and my choice to make today. My prayer and hope for you is, you will choose well. Pray with me, would you?